Hey everybody, this is Michael Magnanti. I am the producer and editor of the Who Isn't Fucking Crazy podcast, and I'm recording this little intro just to explain the hiatus of the show. In addition to being the producer and editor of Who Isn't Fucking Crazy, I was also the director of ticket sales for the Wilmington Sharks baseball team. That was a full-time position. My first full-time position coming out of college and it proved to be a little bit too much for me. So unfortunately, I had to prioritize my full-time job as opposed to editing the podcast and posting the podcast. So that is why the show has been on a bit of a hiatus. I apologize to the fans, and I apologize to Doug and Stacy for the inconvenience. However, I appreciate everyone's patience and loyalty, as do Doug and Stacy, and I look forward to seeing the podcast continue to grow. So thank you guys for listening to my little message and enjoy this episode of Who Isn't Fucking Crazy. Welcome to our podcast, Who Isn't Fucking Crazy. He's Doug Engelman, visiting assistant professor in sociology at UNCW. And she is Stacy Colomer, director of the School of Social Work at UNCW. And we are here to answer the question, Who isn't fucking crazy? Today's guest we're so excited to have Stephanie Stokely Payne, who is the Admissions and Outreach Specialist at Project Transition. How are you doing, Steph? I'm great. Thank you both so much for having me. This is awesome. It is going to be awesome. So we just usually start off with just a little bit of, you know, background on you. If you could just let us know about your um, your job. Um, you are also, I should have mentioned, you're also a peer. Um, Mm-hmm. And um, we'd like to talk a little bit about that. So if you could just give us a little background and we'll sure. go into it. Sure. Well, I am born and raised right here in Wilmington. So Wilmingtonian. You're her second. Uh, well, that's, yes. Just second. That's a lot. I wonder if I know them. <laughs> We're hard to come by. Brianna Carr. You must know her. Doesn't mm-hmm. sound familiar, but possibly. In the field, everything, yeah. Possibly. I am the, um, as you said, admissions and outreach specialist at Project Transition, uh, which is a new program here in Wilmington. We're a 12 to 18 month community-based residential treatment program for individuals with serious mental illness and co-occurring substance use. So we're set up very differently than the average program. We have all of our members set up in fully furnished apartments in the community. Then they attend the day programming at our recovery center during the day where they receive all their therapies. And um, it is the best job in the world. I couldn't have created a job like this more suited for, for me and who I am. And, my personal story it's it's an honor to be a part of it i what i do is i i meet people during my outreach in the community that could benefit from our program and i basically my job is to get them in the door and get them started get get them on track i've been in recovery for over four years now um which you know if, if it wasn't for that and meeting the right people i can honestly say don't know that I'd be here 
So very lucky, very grateful, and every day is a gift. But this is super cool. I, I really appreciate you guys having me come in and be a part of this. Well, we're excited to hear all of your insights and to help our audience tremendously by sharing them. Um, so you mentioned in the project outreach, you go out and you find individuals to bring into the program. How do you do that? What, what, what is your process? So, well, I get a lot of referrals <coughs> from other, from other, um, other treatment centers, the hospitals, um, really the people we're here for are, are the most vulnerable members of the community. So they're the individuals that have a mental health diagnosis or dual diagnosis like myself, and they have been caught in this, uh, I refer to it as a wash, rinse, repeat cycle, where they're admitted into the hospital and discharged into homelessness, maybe they get incarcerated for a bit, back in the hospital, discharged, um, you know, maybe they, maybe they stay at a family home or a sober house for a bit, back in the hospital, back into homelessness. And what, where we come in is, is we try to break that cycle because, you know, you, you have to, you have to start somewhere and obviously that's not working. And it's not working for a lot of people. There's not a whole lot of support for individuals that have both the mental health diagnosis and the substance use issue. And as, as we all know, and as I've learned from my time on this earth, one usually comes with the other. You know, I don't know that 99% is the is a, that's definitely not an accurate term, but it feels really high, you know, because we learn to self-medicate, you know, either we, we get the diagnosis or we don't get the diagnosis and, and you try and you do what you can. And then that lasts until it doesn't. And, and then you're stuck with, you know, without a home. So we are, our main therapeutic modality is dialectical behavior therapy, which is wonderful for folks like me that need to learn skills and take time to practice the skills. There's a lot of, of acceptance involved in DBT, which is like this, okay, this is what, this is what I'm facing. This is my diagnosis. And these are the areas where I need to learn how to maybe cope differently. And this is, it essentially gives you a blueprint of, and, an, and more importantly, it's an action plan. It's not sitting and talking and, ruminating and in that, that fear and where do I start, which I've definitely experienced myself. Mm -hmm. So just to back up, and you keep talking and, and touching on your own diagnosis, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to you pre-being uh, sober for four years? Yes. How did you get into this line of work? So I... Um, this is I will try to do this as um, congruently as possible I always had an interest in psychology it's what I wanted to go to school for um, I myself at a young age was diagnosed with ADD and um, you know my parents were very supportive they tried every natural route possible before you know before reaching out to pharmaceutical solutions 
And I gave up on myself really early in life, educationally speaking. Um, I would say probably about fourth grade, I remember just saying, well, I can't learn. You know, I have this learning di disability, I'm, I, I'm stupid. You know, that's when the, the negative self-talk started for me and didn't really stop until I learned a slew of lessons the hard way probably about four or five years ago. Um, I really learned how to self-hate before I ever learned how to self-love. And that's something I'm just now realizing at 35 years old. But um, I was, I, and this is probably a totally different podcast, but I did have a, a lot of major reconstructive hip surgeries later in high school that kind of prolonged getting my college career started. A lot of failed attempts at college things I was prescribed a medication for the ADD that little did I know was really the last thing I needed to be taking because I had this diagnosis of bipolar that I was unaware of. So I would go eight, nine days without sleep. I would enroll, start a semester, and then kind of come to out of a, a manic state on the other side of the actual state of North Carolina with, you know, my parents' car, you know, not asking for permission and just, I guess I'm dropping out again and really couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't live independently. I did a lot of couch surfing. Um, I've always been able to get along really well with people through all of it. And, you know, I, I, my parents were very supportive, but you know, there's a level of shame that comes with with all this and I just had too much pride to, to really accept the help they were offering for many years. But in my early 20s, I finally saw a psychiatrist that, that diagnosed me with bipolar. And there was, um, there was the beginning of kind of seeing a light, like, oh, oh, this makes sense. But at that point, I had already become such an expert self-medicator that any of the pharmaceutical solutions that would have helped didn't stand a chance because I couldn't go two days without without drinking. That was the beginning of my official accurate diagnosis that I remember feeling very relieved to hear. Uh, you mentioned the family uh, dynamics. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that we, we want to really bring out in these interviews is you know how the family reacts to uh, various diagnoses in, in their sure. children, especially. And so could you talk a little bit about how, you know, how the family, yeah. the parents and yeah. siblings, if you have them, responded to this actual so, diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. I have two amazing parents and one younger sibling um, who, to my knowledge, was never really aware of that diagnosis. I was in adulthood when I got it. However, there was uh, another immediate family member that had received a bipolar diagnosis and you know at that time there was a lot of well we're not going to claim this was was the words i remember hearing um and there was a lot of struggles i witnessed from the person who had the diagnosis or the family <clears throat> both it was a well we're not gonna we're not gonna claim this diagnosis, you know, we, we will figure out another solution, another way to deal with it. Does, does excuse me, does claim mean, 
acknowledge? Pretty much. Um, my, my family's a very religious family, so it was, we're not, no, you know, we're just not, we're not accepting this. So it's one of the reasons why DBT has worked so well for me because there is this um, radical acceptance mm -hmm. and acceptance period of this is what I'm facing. This is, this is, you know, this is my diagnosis. How, how, what am, what, how can I educate myself? What, what skills do I need to learn and practice to be successful and turn these struggles into strengths because it's possible. It's a hundred percent possible. And I, I love what I do because whenever I was going through what I went through, you know, couch surfing, um, not able to live independently, I didn't have the professional guidance to say, okay, well, so here, here's what we got to do. We first have to address this addiction and, and, you know, and then we can, we can go, we can go from there. It was, it was a lot of research I did on my own and um, I'm just so, I'm so grateful that, that the dual diagnosed programs are becoming more and more accepted and popular and accessible. Yeah, we had a, um, a guest last week, uh, Ryan Estes, and he spoke a lot about the dual diagnosis, but from more of a macro level of, you know, how do we get more funding? Mm -hmm. We know that we can help people, but there's just not enough services and programs out there because of funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful Project Transition is, has partnered with Trillium to work with specifically folks that have the Medicaid that population is, I mean, the, the need is so prevalent here in our community. Yeah. So when you're doing outreach to folks, um, what are some of the, the things that they are resistant to? Like you spoke about your own family not willing to acknowledge. Do you find that when you're reaching out to people to show them, like, here's an excellent way to, to get you help? What, kind, what is their reaction to it? Well... Uh, a lot of the people that I talk to, because we are a voluntary program, are at that point where they're ready. They're, they're ready and willing to do what it takes to, to get on their own two feet. Um, their family is usually extremely supportive. But because we're a voluntary program, I haven't really had too many interactions with folks. I mean, there is the, you know, the substance use struggle that, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of denial in that. So it's not unheard of that I'm working with someone and there, you know, you need, we require 30 days um, clean, sober prior to admission. And it's, it's not unheard of that I'll, I'll be in touch with somebody and then all of a sudden they'll kind of fall off the grid. But I do everything I can to stay in touch with them, and and I usually end up hearing back from them at some point. At some point, you know, they they'll, they'll come back around, but those windows are so small. So I try to do everything in my power to stay in touch with them. One of the things that I experienced with my son, I think you know the story from the book, uh, mm -hmm. was that it was probably five years, six years into his 
recovery that he finally came to terms with the fact that he had to stop uh, getting high, basically. Mm -hmm. And once he did that, uh, it was almost, uh, the transformation was almost magical. It was amazing to me. Um, how do you, how do you convince someone? It took him years of uh, really trusting in a therapist that he was seeing, but how do, how do you convince someone in that short a period of time to, to give up on something that they've been relying on for many, many, many years probably? Well, I don't think it's anything that, that anyone else can do for anyone. And, and one, of the, one of the greatest parts of our program is if, if, we have, if we have someone come on board with us and they have a, a slip up, they have a, a, a recurrence, if you will, they don't lose their housing there's still, if anything else, it's an opportunity for us to say, okay, where did things go off track here? You know, um, whereas if, if this recurrence were to have happened out in the community where the repercussions would have been tenfold and they would have had no support, it's, it's really an opportunity. You know, it's like, let's, let's dive into this. Let's figure out what skills we need to work on. What tools were we maybe lacking when we made these decisions and then, and then moving forward. But I don't think anyone can really make that call for anyone else. I think the best thing we can do is, is honestly lead by example and just try and try and be the best version of ourselves as best as we can. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at here. You're, you're convincing people based on your own history, yeah. your own well, experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing that I lacked <laughs> for many years when I was my most miserable was not only the professional guidance, but also someone with lived experience. I didn't, I'll never forget the day I was in detox and I, I saw a woman about my age come in and she had been sober for 90 days, which in my mind at that time was just impossible for me. And she came in and she said the words, 91 days ago, I was sitting in that chair. And it was like yeah. the hope, the hope that was there for me. And then as I dove into the rooms of the 12-step programs, and, and there are so many different ways to, to recover. That's the, the route that's worked for me. But I met so many people that were also able to be open and honest about their mental health diagnosis. And I was like, wow, wow, I'm really not alone. Like, look at that, look at, this is possible. This is, I'm, I'm not a lost cause. <laughs> we're not lost causes, and this is, we've got, a, it's my obligation now to to share this hope with other people that are that are on the on those same struggles in life. If that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> that really resonates. <clears throat> so um, after the program, your program that you work for, the twelve to eighteen months, do you continue to provide services or they or do you just connect them to other services? So we stay in touch with them. We definitely follow up, make sure they're doing okay. There aren't any other services that we could get them connected with. It's also not uncommon for members to graduate from our program and come back. Mm -hmm. They're welcome to do that. There's, there's always skills to be learned and it, and it happens. So we check in with them and um, with us being a new program, 
you know, we just started admitting members in April. We don't yet have any graduation success stories, but I know they're in the works. I will be reporting back with those. Oh, we'll have you back, yeah. Definitely. And, and you, do you guys help them find stable housing? and? Um... Yeah, so we start working on their, where you know, they, they, they pretty much all share the goal of wanting to, to learn the skills that it takes to live independently, while that looks different for each member. So within their first week or so with us, they're announcing their game plan for graduation where they see themselves. So, you know, with the cost of living in Wilmington, obviously, if if it's not feasible for an individual to, to have an apartment on their own, we're talking about, well, what are our options, you know, friends and family-wise, or what, um, you know, could we talk to some some maybe roommate candidates? So all of those are things that we, we help support them in. And the last three months that they're with us, they're working really closely with their treatment team to essentially form a blueprint of, of when they transition into the community. Okay, this is, this is where I'm gonna be driving for my therapy now. This is where I'm going to receive my social worker assistance now, where they're taking care of my benefits. This is my dentist office. And so it is, it's a true smooth transition rather than, oh, today's the 21st. It's been great having you, good luck. <laughs> Good luck out there. (laughs) And I needed that. I mean, I would have been knocking on the doors to get into this program, you know, 12, 13 years ago. I couldn't do it on my own, but I wanted it so badly. This reminds me so much of my experience with my son. And I I think I mentioned the first time I met you Mm -hmm. that uh, he he was in a program like this in the Chicago area 20-some years ago. And this is a new kind of new kind of an idea here which is exciting to me because that seems like uh, if we can or if you can get you know the growth that you're looking for um that could be so powerfully helpful to so many right oh my god yeah, yeah absolutely you, you know what's your aspirations for how big this could get and... well it's not it's not entirely up to me but i'm always i'm always shouting up the chain saying god we could use like 90 more beds, you know, I just, it's, the need is so prevalent. I, I would imagine that, that there's definitely going to be some, some additional programs, at least, you know, if not here locally in the state of North Carolina. Well, your program's so unique in that you are, you don't have a residential program. They're not all together. They're, it sounds like they're in different apartments throughout the community. Yep. So trying to find affordable housing just for your program, I'm, I'm assuming is really tough around here. Yeah, we've been, we've been really lucky. Um, I, I've been very, very pleased with the, the apartment complex that we're, basically we're in a third party contract agreement with them. Um, and it's so nice, you know, because they, they're really, our members are in the community. You know, it's not a facility. Mm-hmm. They're not a patient. They're, they're learning, they're getting a, a taste of independent living before they graduate, you know, in, you know, right off the bat. So is your organization publicly funded, privately owned, or can you talk privately, a bit about Privately that? owned. Uh, Luke Crabtree is our CEO. His, his father is the psychiatrist that started Project Transition. And we've been around for about 40 years. And it all started 
I, I wish I, I wish I had this story memorized, but it all started with a a, a patient that he had that needed a, a he wanted to give him this individualized treatment, and they just started saying, you know, catering it. You know, well, he needs this, but he needs to learn these skills. We want to take it this way. Uh, Marsha Linehan is the developer of DBT, so that was they work closely closely together with Marsha and. I mean, I feel like I owe my life to both the 12-step, both 12-step recovery and DBT specifically. I I see a lot of relations with the two, mm -hmm. and how it works for me. So I I hope we just keep growing and growing. Well, you just raised a really good point that I I just want you to talk a little bit more about. So you're talking about the services for others and your role. And you yourself have been in recovery for four years. So what do you keep doing for yourself? Well, I have a sponsor. I have an amazing sponsor. And the one thing that any 12-step any program will say is that it's, it's, recovery is not something that can be done alone. Um, I, I spent the majority of my life and adult life feeling very isolated and alone in, in these struggles. And it's easy to try and, and trick myself sometimes to say, well, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll do this on my own time, you know, especially now that I have this job that I'm just obsessed with and it's so fulfilling. It's like, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I will do my, my self-care, my self-work, you know, here I'll squeeze it in here and there but if I don't have someone that can help hold me accountable mm -hmm. it's not gonna work it's and and you feel it and so I, I do a lot of daily daily meditation is the one thing that I've that I have stuck with from the very beginning that's helped my focus and you know just the ability to kind of realize constantly like I'm not in this alone mm -hmm. I'm not. So I, I stick with my support group. Um, I have, you know, I make sure I, I'm getting my therapy in. And I, if anything, I, I feel like this, the support group aspect is sometimes even more important than the proper medication. Um, I mean, they're just equally as important. I did find, once I finally did find the appropriate medication for my bipolar, I found oh, all of a sudden these, this focus struggle is kind of gone, shockingly enough. <laughs> so one can't come without the other in my book. It's a balance. It's not easy. It, it never, it's never a walk in the park, but talking to people like you and Staying engaged and aware is all is all really helpful. So, where do you see your trajectory in this field going? We don't usually ask that question, but it just uh, I don't know. I'm I'm taking things one day at a time. Okay, that's fair. I'm taking things one day at a time, and just <laughs> grateful for each day that I get, each person I get to talk to, and kind of share a little bit of that hope. Like, hey, I've I felt what you're feeling, and I've I've been so sick that I, you know, can't brush my teeth. I've been that. I've been there. Like I've been there, and 
I have a job now and I love my job. I never thought that was going to be in the cards for me. So I just, if I can give hope, continue to give hope, then I'm, I'm happy. It's a, it's a blessing. Well, really. you're doing that, right? It's amazing. Yeah. Thanks. And I'm going to ask you to come on to, I teach a course called Sociology of Mental Disorder, and I'd like you to come in and talk to my students sometime. Oh, cool. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that sounds great. We'll talk. Yeah. Yes. It's a date. <laughs> sounds good. Well, I think that's it, unless you would like to add something yeah, that, up? yeah, that. Oh, gosh. Ooh, I, well, I wasn't thinking. Of, I mean. How do we break are... the stigma? Tell us how, how to do, do it. How do we break the stigma? I would say, uh, you know, I've, I've shared with Doug several times before my opinion on all the, the, the big plus side to the pandemic and what it did for us. And the stigma against mental health. You know, we were all forced with the fact that we're all responsible for our own mental health and we all have it, like shocking. So I would just say keeping that awareness and and recognizing that everyone's got a battle they're fighting mm-hmm. is, is enough, you know? Yeah. We can just keep shining our light, that's it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. You guys, too. This was fantastic. I hope to be back. Oh, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, what a delightful personality. Oh, my gosh. She is so positive and optimistic. And and for our listeners who can't see her, um, but just like a little fireball of energy. Yeah, I mean, smiling, bright. I mean, just everything about her is just so engaging and I, I just think our listeners are as I said to her offline I think our, our listeners are just going to be so uh, energized by hearing her and her optimism and and, and, and how much thinks. she loves what she does yeah I mean yeah. The, the passion she has for her work it, it feels infectious like I felt excited about it yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. tough work I mean that's the the other piece of it is I mean, you, you could hear it in her own story about recovery and the years it takes and getting people to the point where they voluntarily want to be a part of that program. It's a long time and a lot of work, and yet you didn't sense that from her. You didn't sense how no. challenging and difficult it could be. And it's it's like um, all that happened somewhere in the past in her, you know, in her, she lives in the present, and the present is so positive that all that stuff that happened in the past doesn't matter other than it gave her the experience to mm-hmm. get here you know that, I mean that's a cool place to be uh, yeah so we'll have her back we, we definitely will have her back I want to hear about people who graduate yeah yeah next year we'll get, yeah. her, get her back yeah, sounds good all right okay. well thank you thank you Special thanks to our wonderful engineer, Michael Magnanti. Thank you to the Department of Sociology and Criminology and the School of Social Work for their incredible support. We love you guys. Thank you to all our listeners. And don't forget to check out our next episode. Bye now. Take care.